This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. The Buck Sexton Show. We're joined by Matt Continetti. He is the editor-in-chief of the Washington Free Beacon. You can read his latest on freebeacon.com. Matt, always great to have you. Thanks for having me, Buck. Apologies for the uh, emergency vehicles in the background. They're just prepared for whatever fire starting you may do, my friend. So the crisis of the conservative intellectual... Um, how populism displaced conservatism in the Republican Party. This is a column that you've uh, you've written on FreeBeacon.com. I don't. I mean, you give a great history here of the sort of uh, of the conservative movement in the country and the different factions. If if we could, I, I would recommend everybody to read it because you go into real detail and you talk about uh, William Buckley, uh, William F. Buckley, and firing line and, and the sort of level of discourse with presidential candidates there. Obviously, people should juxtapose that to what we see going on now. But I want to ask you is this. Don't people have a point? Forget about Trumpism for a second. Don't people have a point when they say that there seems to be too much distance between the intellectual elites of the Republican Party and the rank and file of the Republican Party? I don't mean distance in terms of intelligence. I mean distance as in there's not a familiarity, not a friendliness, not a connection. I think there's always been a tension. And one of the um, things I try to do in my piece that you mentioned on on freebeacon.com is kind of trace the history of that tension. And uh, we definitely see uh, the tension inflamed right now over the issue of Donald Trump and um, support for him. And uh, I think without a doubt what what the intellectual conservatives have found um, over the last year is that they are very few in number when it comes uh, to the broader conservative movement, Firstly, first, and then the Republican Party, uh, secondly, and so this is a, a moment uh, for uh, reevaluation for a lot of them, and in some cases, uh, not mine, but in, in other cases, uh, a break, uh, a real break. People who had been associated with the Republican Party and the conservative movement now uh, disassociating themselves from it. Now, I, I want to ask you if if you think that. Uh that this is a fair way to put it, or at least perhaps one way to, to contextualize some of this. It has always seemed to me that one of the things that the Democratic the Democratic Party does well is that membership is a very low bar. I don't, I don't, I don't just mean uh, obviously registering and voting Democrat, right, because that, that is what it is. But if you want to be a Democrat, all you really have to know, uh, all you really have to subscribe to is – Government overall is good. It solves problem. The government should be helping me with my problems. 
and nice people vote Democrat, right? It is a very it is not expected that you understand. I mean, culturally within the Democratic Party, it's not expected that you understand the undergirding philosophy of the DNC and and the various platforms and everything else. And I feel like they don't. I think there's some degree of uh, patronizing that goes on here as a result of that as well. But at least they always make it very clear. If you want to be a Democrat, all you have to do, think is government is good. Big government's your friend and everything's fine. I mean, it's sort of like people talk about uh, one of the reasons why Islam spread so quickly other than put aside the conquest part of it is, you know, the five pillars. You do that, you're pretty much, you know, you do that, you're pretty much in the tent. Republicans seem to have this separation, right? There seems to be, well, they're the people that understand, the people that have read The Road to Serfdom and the people who haven't. And they don't do as good a job in my mind, and I'm wondering if you think this is factored into this year even apart from Trump, of making everybody feel like, well, you don't have to necessarily be somebody who's deeply invested in political philosophy to understand the basic tenets of conservatism and be a conservative. Right. I think I think the Democrats are very transactional, basically, because they don't have any conceptual issue with the welfare state, with the federal government. And so, like you say, if it, they're, they're not really discussing the size of government or whether government should be involved in, in private life or in civic life. They're discussing different things. Uh, what is How's government going to help me? And so the coalition is very – they understand it in those terms. You know, think about one of the things we learned from the WikiLeaks uh, hack of John Podesta's emails is when he put all of the various uh, possible vice presidential nominees for Hillary Clinton into the fruit groups, the food groups, they called them. And there was one group for Latinos. There was one group of women. There was one group of African-Americans. And then there was Bernie Sanders all by his lonesome. So this is the way that Democrats kind of understand the world, and liberals do. Uh, you're members of a group. We all agree on the basic premise that the government is there to, quote-unquote, help you, and we're going to basically squabble uh, over how best to do that. Uh, Republicans understand themselves differently. The Republican Party is not unified around the question of the welfare state. You have debates between Republicans from decades about whether what how big the federal government should be. The Republican Party is not unified over foreign policy. It's not unified over uh, the role of religion in public life, and those tensions are are much more um, apparent uh, to this this cycle. So uh, I think that's the fundamental difference between the two parties is uh, the, the Democrats are unified around this idea that the welfare state is here, it's expanding, and it's going to continue to expand to help new groups. What, as an aside, Democrats are not unified, though, on the question of the market and what role does the market play. And we saw that in the Democratic primary, where Hillary Clinton, believe it or not, defended the market and small business against uh, what she called Bernie Sanders' democratic socialism. Bernie's much less free market than she is, amazingly. So the Republicans, on the other hand, they don't know what they think about the welfare state. They don't know what they think about religion. They don't know what they think about foreign policy. And as a result, you have uh, just uh, kind of this, this ongoing civil war. Now, on that point about the transactional nature of the Democratic Party, I think that's that's essential. You really not only can one not understand what one can't even you know begin to uh, begin to sort of wrap one's head around the Democratic Party without the transactional nature of it, right? Because you have people from very disparate 
uh, backgrounds in, in every conceivable sense, falling under the sort of the broad uh, rubric of being of being a Democrat. But they all think they're going to get something right. If the Democrats are in power, they will get X, Y and Z, whatever it may be. And we could sit here and illustrate what all those are. But people know. OK, what uh, and this is one of the things that came up, I think, during Trump's rise, that there were some conservatives of of sort of uh, of goodwill and and are trying to be fair minded about the whole situation. And they would say, well, let's be honest. What do the sort of uh, Eastern elite Republicans uh, who are sort of the you know intellectual class of the Republican Party and you know, people who live in D.C. and New York who write for places and, you know, out in other places, too, I know. But just generally speaking, uh, what do they offer a guy who is uh, works in the Rust Belt? Who's you know got a wife and two kids and uh, only has a high school degree and feels like his jo- you know the job is just going to get outsourced. It's a question of when. Healthcare costs are going up. He can't keep up. He's doing his job. He's doing his part. And Republicans, it seems perhaps to him, are just always giving a lecture on how you know we, we need to return to like the you know an even more free market and maybe we could give him some lectures on Edmund Burke to keep him warm and safe at night. I mean that. I, I, and I don't think that's I mean, that's obviously a caricature, but I don't think it's completely uh, it, it's uh, not based in any reality whatsoever. I, I do think there's a disconnect. Well, I wish more Republican politicians would give lectures on Edmund Burke because <laughs> OK, true. But. I uh, I study Edmund Burke and I don't see any Republican politicians uh, talking about him. Um, what I do see, though, is, in fact, some of the conservative intellectuals are the ones that I would call intellectuals. And when I use the term intellectuals, I don't mean anyone who lives in New York or Washington. I don't even mean most journalists. I mean people who put out serious books uh, and that, like, that articulate ideas that force even the left to respond to. And so really, I only think they're about two or three conservative intellectuals alive today. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, but if you give me, if, to, to tell you, to, just to take your premise, though, the, one, the, the youngest one is Yuval Levin, who is the editor of National Affairs Magazine and the author of two books, um, actually four books, but two major um, books. And he's done the most um, of anyone in order to address precisely the family that, that you um, outlined there and what new policies uh, Republicans should adopt uh, to make uh, make an appeal to voters like that. His problem is the Republican Party isn't isn't responding at all. In fact, there are only two Republican senators, Mike Lee of Utah and Ben Sass of Nebraska, who have any who have picked up on some of the ideas he's putting forth. So um, there is a third group here, right? So you have you have the conservative intellectuals, like I say, a small group. Um, and then you have the, the, the kind of who I call the populists, and these tend to be more activists in the conservative movement. Um, and then you do have the they're jockeying for for favor uh, for the for the Republican politicians. And the Republican politicians, I think, uh, either are have gone in a populist direction, or on the other hand, they still think that we're living in the 1980s. And so they've exactly they don't they have not there is a divide they haven't crossed that divide between um, the the grassroots of the of of the party or of the conservative movement it's a major dilemma and I I don't know if, what the answers are yeah I was gonna so so I was gonna ask you how how does this begin to get fixed uh, I, I think there'll be I mean I, I know that there there's sort of the the door number one door number two situation here if Trump wins Trump loses uh, let's just take for the sake of our discussion now. 
Trump loses, what are the what are the lessons that should be learned? Not necessarily that will be, but what are the lessons that should be learned from a Trump loss for the for the GOP establishment? Let's say, forget about the three the three people that are writing worthy books. Fair enough. For the GOP machine, such as it is, what are the lessons that should be taken so that we don't just become you know a, a de facto one party state with you know Hillary and the Democrats running it for the next twenty years? Well, I do think the Republican establishment, Republican uh, politicians, and even uh, people who work in, with ideas or uh, write articles uh, for a living uh, should be uh, more open to the fact that uh, this country is a divided country. And they should study, an, uh, an, to name a conservative, another conservative intellectual, Charles Murray, who more than anyone since his 2012 book, Coming Apart, has described exactly this segment. We have had Charles Murray on the show, in fact. Yeah. Go ahead, sir. And, and Murray, of course, has been describing for years the segmentation of the population and how there are a lot of people who are just left behind because of changes in the economy and changes in credentialing. So I, I do think the Republican Party needs to address these, this issue, and they have not done a very good job of it. I also think populists need to learn some lessons here uh, in the case of a Trump loss, and even if, in the case of a Trump win, because the populist mode of rhetoric and the populist kind of um, temperament has alienated huge numbers of people from the Republican nominee and from the Republican Party more largely. And so it's not just Republic, it's not just Paul Ryan who has to learn things from the 2016 election, but it's also the supporters of Donald Trump, even if somehow he pulls off a win. And that is the, that I say this because when you just run the models, the political science models or the, or the generic Hillary versus a generic Republican, uh, those models show that the Republicans should be winning handily. And the reason they're not winning handily is, I think, the nominee, but also the style of politics he's represented. It's just turned off more, many, many people. So, But you're talking about lessons that aren't necessarily um, ideological lessons or, or, or changes in the way the party re- – these, these are sort of Trump-specific lessons. This is like don't have a guy who says things that upset a lot of people and has a history of – being a bit crass with women, right? I mean, th- th- those are well, specific to Trump. Just, are there broader lessons about one, populism? No, it's not just one guy. I mean, because the, one of the things I talk about in in the piece on freebeacon.com is Trump is the latest iter- iteration or incarnation of a of a movement of a, a populist politics uh, that is all, has always been part of American life and has been part of the American right now for about fifty years and. Um, and this has helped the American right and the Republican Party in, in many instances, uh, the balance between conservatism and populism. But I think over the last eight years, and now in Trump, um, just kind of gratuitously exposes how it could be, a, it, it's bringing diminishing returns, uh, certainly for the Republican Party. And I also think for the and those three intellectual conservatives we mentioned, you know, they're um, they're completely adrift now because no one is paying attention to them, and uh, they have very little influence, even under, even in the traditional institution that they've aligned with, which was the Republican Party. What do you think about the comparisons, or not even comparisons, really? People will say that Trump is essentially the latest iteration of uh, Pat Buchanan or Buchananism. Whether one agrees with his positions on trade and immigration and such or not. Buchanan is a, in his own way, an intellectual. I feel like that's that's kind of an unfair comparison in some ways, but also I can see how the policies do line up a bit. 
Yeah, right. I mean, Buchanan is an intellectual. He writes books. He he stands for an idea. Uh, whether he's a conservative, though, that's another. That's a, that that'd be a difference. And um, I, I think I'm not even sure he would describe himself as a conservative. Um, so is he a populist? Yeah. Uh, is he a reactionary? Yeah. Um, and he, there's clearly a, a overlap between the principles that Pat Buchanan has stood for for the past 25 years and what Donald Trump has stood for over the course of this election, anti-immigration, anti-trade, and anti-intervention overseas. So there's a clear overlap there, and Buchanan has emerged as one of his Donald Trump's strongest supporters. And do I think, think even that, Donald Trump name-checked Buchanan after the second debate at a rally. So. Yeah. Do you think that Trumpism, uh, in, in what it has become, uh, just last one for you, Matt, and then, then we'll let you uh, go back to everything else you got going on. But do, do you think that Trumpism was an inevitable confrontation for the GOP, or actually was this a fluke because of the huge field and just a few crazy factors all coming together this year? I think it. I think it's been inevitable for some time. Because I think what you saw, um, whether it was Buchanan 25 years ago, or whether it was Sarah Palin eight years ago, the reaction to Sarah Palin and what she represented when she was the vice presidential nominee, that is, that's exactly the reaction that Donald Trump produced seismically in the Republican Party when he ran for president. And of course, who was one of the first Republicans to come behind Donald Trump? It was Sarah Palin. So uh, you, saw, you saw Buchanan, you saw it in the anti-immigration um, protests against the amnesty bill during Bush's presidency. You saw it with Palin. You saw it with, to some extent with the Tea Party, which was, which was very populist. And so it was just a matter of time before you, you had a moment of rupture. And I think that's what Donald Trump represented. He did it. Uh, he made the rupture worse uh, because people's opinions of him are so polarized and so visceral. You either love him or you hate him. And indeed, he's the question of the 2016 election. It's not about Hillary Clinton. It's about whether Donald Trump should be president or not. And if uh, if enough people think he should be, uh, then he'll then he'll win. All right. Matt Continetti is the editor in chief of the Washington Free Beacon. He has a piece on freebeacon.com up right now. You'll definitely want to check out Crisis of the Conservative Intellectual, How Populism Displaced Conservatism in the Republican Party. Matt, always great to have you, sir. Thank you for calling in. Thank you, Buck. The Buck Sexton Show. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and, and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. 